When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode of Conspiracy Unlimited, what could cause a person to suddenly and inexplicably explode into a ball of fire? The phenomenon known as spontaneous human combustion has left researchers and investigators scratching their heads in disbelief and horror for centuries. Overnight he had burned from 170, 185 pound person, apparently in reasonably decent health, to a pile of ashes um, that weighed a few pounds, leaving behind one half of one leg, a piece of patella, the kneecap, and what may or may not have been his head. If so, it was burned unrecognizable as a human head to most of the first responders. This podcast is brought to you by Family Bunker Designs. If you believe things are headed in a scary direction these days, then you'll want to listen to this message. Four years ago, John Hartman, a retired military man and certified disaster and survival expert, created the ultimate solution to keep his family safe from danger. He built a family survival bunker. With the advice of experts, he decided to share what he learned and published the ultimate guide to family bunker construction. His designs are highly affordable, yet your family bunker will be safe well-hidden, and strong enough to withstand almost any disaster or terrorist attack. These days, with so many threats out there, a safe hideout is essential for security. And right now, when you order the Family Bunker Guide, you'll get three bonus survival guides absolutely free. Don't put it off. Get this life-saving information now. Learn more at clearbroadcast.com. That's clearbroadcast.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. All right, this is this is weird. So just before I sat down in the studio, I passed by the TV in the rec room, which is adjacent to where I'm sitting now, and the mighty Aphrodite, my lovely bride, is sitting there watching a BBC miniseries, Bleak House, which is an adaptation of Charles Dickens' novel of the same name. It's, it's like a 15-parter, and I think it just started... Last night or tonight, it's episode one or two. Anyway, here's the thing. 
in the book, and I'm sure in the miniseries, there is this character called Crook. K-R-O-O-K. He's an alcoholic. And get this, Dickens kills this character off by having him burst into flames. Spontaneous human combustion. How weird is that, given tonight's subject? I swear, this is on TV as I speak. Now, Crook doesn't uh, burst into flames on this episode. I'm not exactly sure when that happens. However, for Bleak House to be playing, literally as I'm walking into the studio, uh... Well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised after so many years that these things happen. Uh, we will be talking about spontaneous human combustion, but before we get to that, I, I can't believe this. Anyway, I, I wanted to remind you about this contest we have going on. What happens is, every Friday, I draw a name from a pile of emails, and the winner receives a copy of either Volume 1 or Volume 2 of my Strange Planet CDs. Uh, they're collections of my weekly radio feature uh, that airs up here in Canada called Strange Planet. And all you need to do is subscribe to Conspiracy Unlimited, if you haven't already done so, and then rate and review it. Rate and review it, and then grab a screenshot of that and email it to me, along with your name and address, to richardserrett one at gmail.com. richardserrett one at gmail.com. And then be listening to Friday's episode every week when I do the draw. Good luck spontaneous human combustion. It is uh, detested and disdained, denied, debunked by nearly all academicians and forensic professionals as simply impossible. The human body does not burn this way, they say. These are hoaxes. There's no way, no way, period. But what if the overwhelming consensus against SHC is wrong? Imagine that part of a human limb is extending from a pile of ash at an otherwise nearly pristine fire scene, proving a person has somehow been incinerated more thoroughly than by a crematorium. It's made many first responders uncomfortable when they find themselves for the first time confronting what education, training, and experience has clearly not prepared them for. If it makes you uncomfortable, don't listen any further. However, if this makes you inquisitive, curious, and eager to know more, about the most extreme of combustion conundrums, then I invite you to listen further. Larry Arnold was trained in the methodology of science with an undergraduate major in mechanical engineering. He later worked in the private sector in electrical engineering. Larry developed a burgeoning fascination with human consciousness potential and undertook a new province of study, the unexplained. In 1976, he founded Paris Science International, as director of PSI, he combines his scientific background with investigating and describing the intriguing world of Fortiana, those unconventional subjects and weird events that fail to find acceptance, let alone explanation, within the boundaries of today's science. Larry is internationally recognized for his pioneering research in spontaneous human combustion. He is the author of Ablaze, The Mysterious Fires, of spontaneous human combustion. Larry Arnold, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Thank you, Richard. We're delighted to be with you and your listeners. It's a great evening down here in south-central Pennsylvania, but we're dealing with some really pretty snowfall tonight. Yeah. Nothing's up there in Toronto. Uh, we, we're getting uh, some snow. It's, these are the, this is the kind of winter I remember as a child, actually. Uh, a lot of snow and cold, cold temperature. We've, we've gotten off kind of light the last few years, so... 
This is more like the ones I remember as a kid. Likewise here. So, uh, let's begin with a definition. Spontaneous human combustion, SHC. What does it mean exactly? Let's start out with what fire science is willing to accept in terms of spontaneous combustion, which is the byproduct of spontaneous heating, which occurs when a material increases in its temperature without drawing heat from its surroundings. If that material reaches its ignition temperature, then spontaneous ignition or combustion occurs. Fire science has no problem with that. You'd be hard-pressed to find any firefighter anywhere in the world who would dismiss the reality of spontaneous combustion. Sure. But when you, when you put the word human between spontaneous and combustion, you unleash a firestorm of derision and disdain and debunking. Here's our definition based on more than 40 years of researching the phenomenon. This is our concept of spontaneous human combustion. It is the smoking, blistering, or burning of a person in the absence of a known, identifiable, nearby burn agent. If you can rule out caustic chemicals, high amperage electricity, radioactive material, a nearby radiant heat source, then by definition, one needs to consider spontaneous human combustion as a reality if you're dealing with a fire fatality. Right. And you mentioned spontaneous combustion happens. Uh, we've seen it with oily rags left in an open mm-hmm. container. Absolutely. Uh, you know, just uh, an, uh, an air current moving across those oily rags, I guess, can, can cause a, a temperature change ever so slight, just enough to ignite. We've seen bales or piles of hay spontaneously combust, I guess, because of the decomposition process that creates Precisely. heat. Uh, so with a human body, in order for a human body to combust, you need intense high heat, one would think. One and, would think. And a flammable substance. One would think. Hmm. And yet, and yet, and those, yet those things can be absent. And yet history has demonstrated to us and has demonstrated to firefighters around the world with whom we have had the pleasure to meet and who have opened minds to the reality that they do not yet understand everything there is to know about fire and combustion, that on rare occasions, a human body can incinerate itself more thoroughly, more completely than can be achieved with a cadaver in a crematorium retort. And you're at surrounding combustibles such as piles of linen, uh, newspapers, uh, furnishings, in some rare cases, even clothing on the victim escapes the presumed high temperatures that one would expect to have encountered at these amazingly localized fire scenes. So so as gruesome as this is, I'll ask you to sort of paint us a, a mental image here, a mental picture of, of this is exceedingly rare, but what what might a typical case of spontaneous human combustion look like? We'll give you the case that um, did not introduce us to the phenomenon. That would be Mary Hardy Weiser, who met her flaming fate in St. Petersburg, Florida in 1951. But the case that we discovered and have ownership of, if you will, that convinced us that we're looking at something truly abnormal, truly frightful, truly fearsome, and yet absolutely fascinating in terms of science and what is yet to be discovered about what the human body could do to itself. That case would be um, the fiery 
fate at the baffling burning of Dr. John Irving Bentley. Mm. And, and here's the basic story of, of Mr. Bentley, because he fits the classic concept of what history has termed and labeled spontaneous human combustion. The story of Dr. Bentley for us began when we met with um, Don Gosnell. He was a meter reader for a gas company in north central Pennsylvania up in Potter County. And the morning of December 5, 1966, he began his work day on in a, in a, in a morning that's very much like the weather we have right now um, here in south central Pennsylvania, like you're describing in, in Toronto. It was snowing. It was cold, bitterly cold. Imagine you're Don Gosnell. You step on your work boots, put on your heavy jacket and gloves, grab the meter book, and start down the street to read the gas meters. Normal Monday morning for you. You walk into Dr. Bentley's house on 403 North Main Street in downtown Cowdersport. The door's unlocked. It's a town at that time back in 1966. People up there did not lock the doors. It's a very friendly, safe community. Don now, or yourself, if you're imagining yourself in, in his place, notice a wispy, sweet-smelling smoke in the hallway past Dr. Bentley's two-room apartment that's going to take you down to the basement to read his gas meter. You go down the basement steps, read the gas meter, turn to go back upstairs. You notice in the corner of the earthen floor there's a pile of ashes about five inches in height, about two feet in diameter. You're a volunteer fireman. Mm -hmm. You go over and kick the ashes with your work boot, no embers. You look overhead to see where the source of the ashes happened to be, and you see there's a two-by-three-foot hole in the basement ceiling with cherry-red embers around its perimeter. You think to yourself, as Don Gosnell told us, he thought to himself, gee, there must have been a fire here overnight in Dr. Bentley's house. wonder why we didn't get an alarm. You go back upstairs. It's a friendly community. He's going to check in on his um, elderly retired town physician, Dr. Bentley, knocks on the door to the apartment, no response. Dr. Bentley's apartment door, door is unlocked. You turn the handle, stick your head into the two-room apartment, and you don't see Dr. Bentley sitting in his chair in his sitting room. You step into his apartment to look into the only other room in the apartment, which is Dr. Bentley's bathroom. And there you find something that you're completely unprepared to encounter. What you see in Dr. Bentley's bathroom is the other side of that two-by-three-foot hole that you saw moments earlier from the basement. Now you're looking down into the hole. Mm. Next to the hole is half of a leg that Don Gelsnow told us he first thought was a mannequin leg until he bent down and looked at it close and realized it was a human leg. Burned from the knee down, it was intact, still having a leather slipper on its foot. The tar-based linoleum flooring material, highly flammable, did not ignite, did not sustain combustion. Burned only where the body of Dr. Bentley must have fallen. Dr. Bentley was semi-endolytic. He used an aluminum walker to locomote through the apartment. The aluminum walker is lying askew atop the hole through which Dr. Bentley's body immolated. You now realize, as did Don Gosnell, that those ashes that you had kicked moments before in the floor of the basement are the remains of Dr. Bentley's body. Overnight, he had burned from a 170, 185-pound person, apparently in reasonably decent health, to a pile of ashes um, that weighed a few pounds, leaving behind one half of one leg, a piece of patella, the kneecap, and what may or may not have been his head, if so, it was burned unrecognizable as a human head to most of the first responders. Don now ran out of the home, down the street, in his um, office, and, and yelled the understatement of 1966. Dr. Bentley's burned up. Hmm. Indeed, he had, but in a way that 
Don Gosnell, as a firefighter, was unprepared to witness. His fellow firefighters were hearing about this, you know, strange death in the midst. They were, they wanted to see the fire scene from themselves. Don Gosnell went back to the house and, and implored his call, fellow firefighters not to go in. He said, you don't want to see what I, I saw. It scared the crap out of me. Um, you couldn't drag me back in there with a big diesel bulldozer. They went in anyway, came back shaking their heads, completely befuddled and at a total loss to explain what kind of a fire could have consumed a body to that extent, ashening the skeleton, destroying all internal organs, and yet not, not, and yet not melt Dr. Bentley's aluminum walker, which will melt at 1200 degrees Fahrenheit, failed to blister the paint on Dr. Bentley's bathtub, which was directly above the perimeter of the hole through which his body immolated. We were at that fire scene. We can attest that that bathtub was painted with enamel paint. The paint, though blackened, did not blister. We stood at that fire scene. Um, the ceiling was low. We could, um, was six feet high. When we extend our arm upwards, we could touch the ceiling. Not a scorch mark on the ceiling. Plus the sweet, redolent aroma that Don Gosnell reported uh, sensing when he first walked into the house is again atypical of a fire scene where bodies are badly burned. So the Dr. Bentley fire scene, his baffling burning, fits what history has characterized as spontaneous human combustion. Mm. An almost thoroughly immolated body with no indications of the kind of intense heat and flame damage that you would expect to find. In fact, bodies that are pulled out of entire structure fires where temperatures reach 17, 1800 degrees Fahrenheit can be taken to an autopsy, can be taken to a morgue, be autopsy, look for signs of foul play. You could not find evidence of any kind of foul play in Dr. Bentley's ashes. What kind of temperature uh, would be inside a crematorium? Great question. We've, we've spoken to numerous crematorium owners and operators, including one gentleman who not only owns a crematorium, but is a community fire chief. He was on a where he told us that people could burn like Dr. Bentley burned up, and yet he's, you know, he, he runs a crematorium. And what he and his colleagues in that industry, in that business, have told us is this. Crematorium retorts, once the, the temperature is brought up and the cadaver is put in the retort, Temperatures run about 24 to 2600 degrees Fahrenheit for mm. anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes. Then the retort temp temperature is lowered to 1700 to 1800 degrees for another hour and a half to two and a half hours. What comes out of the crematorium retort is, yes, some ashes, but also a lot of bone fragments, large pieces that any good forensic anthropologist has told us they could identify as coming from a male, a female, basically estimating what age of the, the individual was prior to the cremation. You don't find that kind of bone fragments at a classic scene of spontaneous human combustion. Those bone fragments raked out of a crematorium oven are then put in a device called a cremulator, which physically grinds the bone fragments to powder to be placed in the urn and given to the next of kin. Crematorium operators may spend $100,000 or more on the retort, on fuel oil, on lifts, on all kinds of technological devices, filters, and so on, in to conduct their business. And yet, if you look at um, what happened to Dr. Bentley, 
or Mary Reeser in St. Pete back in 1951. Uh, the argument is, well, these people must be victims of smoking mishaps. They dropped a cigarette on themselves. Really? <laughs> if that were the case, crematorium operators being the business men that they are, looking to you know not only provide a, a worthwhile community service, but also to make a profit as a business person, they would rather than spend $100,000 on high-end technological equipment, they'd go out and buy a pack of cigarettes, and for the cost of one cigarette and a free pack of matches at your local bank, um, they could lie this, lay the lit cigarette on the customer, if you will, go out having a leisurely lunch and come back and have a pile of ashes to give to the next kid. <laughs> nice that to point. doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. You're right. You know what else, Larry, that doesn't happen? I don't remember passwords. And we're supposed to have, according to Internet security experts, we're supposed to have a different password for every every website. Think of that. It's a nightmare trying to keep track of all of those passwords. I can't do it. You have one for your online shopping, one for banking, one for your email, and so on and so forth. Long, complicated passwords are great. They're more secure, but they're very difficult to remember. Well, now, finally, a great solution. It's called RoboForm. You never need to remember or type a password ever again. Thank heavens. RoboForm gives you stronger passwords and faster logins all with a single click. It keeps all your devices in sync. And when you shop online, RoboForm fills in those long address forms with one click. It's available for Windows, Mac, iOS, and Android for personal or business use. And for peace of mind, RoboForm has around-the-clock support. It's one great solution for online security. And you can learn more at OneGreatSolution.com. That's OneGreatSolution.com. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Larry Arnold is here. We're talking spontaneous human combustion. Uh, as rare again as this is, how, how many, approximately, how many documented cases are there? We have been researching this subject since the early 70s, maybe the late 1960s. Um, in our database now are about 500 examples of what history would describe as spontaneous human combustion. Not only the classic cases such as Dr. Bentley and many others whose fire scenes emulate what we've just described to you happened in his apartment, um, but also people who have suffered partial spontaneous human combustion. There are survivors of the phenomenon. Um, so. 500 cases, and, and the first case we have from the medical literature dates back to the late 1400s, early 1500s. Factoring how many people have been alive on the entire planet in that period of time, divide that by 500, you can see that the odds are extraordinarily rare, small, that you would um, become a victim of SHC. Right. On the other hand, people occasionally hit the mega Powerball lottery, so, mm -hmm. you know. I... Uh I, I used to read a lot of Charles Dickens in college, and that was my mm -hmm. first encounter with spontaneous human combustion was Bleak House, and Indeed. Dickens decided to kill off one of the characters in that in that novel, who was uh, appropriately named Crook, who mm -hmm. had a uh, a drinking problem, and I guess that was yes. at the time that was the theory. What was behind 
spontaneous human combustion. I'd never heard of such a thing. Uh, I guess it was about 1984, 85, I read that book. So what was the thinking back then, the connection with alcohol? That's that's a great lead-in, yes. Dickens, Dickens invoked SHC to get rid of Mr. Crook in Chapter 33 of Bleak House. And Dickens took, if you um, pardon the, the phrase, a tremendous amount of heat from <laughs> scientific... <laughs> scientific um, it ignited a uh, firestorm of controversy. <laughs> he did indeed, yes. Um, Dickens stood by his ability and justification to invoke SHC as not only a literary, literary device, but he did so based on what he believed was good historical research that he did. Um, George Lewis, a renowned scientist, um, contemporary of, of Dickens, took Dickens to task, you know, for, for invoking something as silly and superstitious as SHC, deluding and misleading his readers when Dickens, you know, should have known better than to have done so. Um, so there was a heated discussion and literary argument back and forth between the two gentlemen. At the time, um, within the mainstream medical community, SHC was hardly debated um, as to whether or not it did occur, and those who believed that it was possible for the body to immolate, as we described, happened to Dr. Bentley. They believed in most cases that the, the victim was able to do so because of being um, an extreme alcoholic. The idea was that alcohol being flammable um, supersaturated the victim's tissues, and then there was an external ignition source, probably, um, or a fainting spell or something else that caused the, the, the victim to come in contact with an external ignition source, and that was the means by which the alcohol-sodded body then took flame and became a self-sustaining combustion. There was a renowned scientist um, in Germany in the 1850s, 1860s. His name was Justin von Liebig. He took an interest in the phenomenon and decided to conduct an experiment um, to test the alcohol theory. And he was not able to succeed in emulating a body to the extent that history had said SHC burned up people, and therefore he concluded that it must be a myth. And his stature was so um, profound in his day that his conclusion has pretty much echoed down through the last 150 or 160 years of fire science. The body simply, it is believed, cannot generate the kind of temperatures necessary to completely dehydrate ashen, um, a 170, 180-pound human being. What about the theory that the combination of methane in the intestine combined with some enzyme, which is working to break down the contents, uh, could cause spontaneous human combustion? Methane. In our view, it's a possibility certainly worthy of exploring. Um, in our book, Ablaze, we, we discuss briefly biophotolysis, in which an enzyme hydrogenase can combine with spinach and light to produce spontaneous combustion of material. Um, the body obviously does generate, in some cases, uh, flammable gases. If there is a way to ignite that either externally or perhaps bioelectrically internally to the body, um, then we have an, an, an ignition means, a spark, if you will, um, that can take off from there. The mystery still remains, how does the body, what, what dissociates the water? What breaks down the water molecule um, if there's a means to do that, and biophotolysis suggests that there's a way to do this, 
then you're left with with hydrogen, a highly flammable gas, mm -hmm. oxygen, which is required, most firefighters say, to sustain a, a, a flame ignition, and a fuel source. Well, the body itself would be the fuel source. Sure. Um, what about the wick effect? What about the wick effect? That is the go-to expl explanation, or in our view, explain away to absolve oneself of having to confront the reality of spontaneous human combustion. The wick effect is basically this. Proponents of it say that the body acts as an inverted candle. The flesh, the adipose tissue of the individual is the candle wax. The clothing of the individual is the wick. And the wick, the clothing, once ignited by an external ignition source, generates enough heat to begin the body's fat to render out slowly through the fabric, and you get an inside-out candle. The proponents say that this is all that is necessary to ash in a body to the extent that Dr. Bentley burned himself up or down. Mrs. Reeser, Mrs. Reeser and scores of other individuals burned completely dehydratedly. Um, we have, in the early days of our research, we certainly were encountered the, the WIC theory. We wanted to test it to see if it worked for us. If it worked, then clearly there was a reasonable, valid scientific explanation for these rare cases, and the mystery is solved. We've conducted numerous experiments in the WIC effect. We have yet to s succeed in any of those attempts. We have watched experts in the fire forensics field attempt to prove that the wick effect is viable and solves all these alleged mysteries that Larry Arnold claims um, to be spontaneous human combustion. To our knowledge, every one of their attempts has failed as well. Um, one very well-known fire investigator down here in the United States, probably equally known up in Canada, John DeHaan, has conducted numerous experiments um, to prove the wick effect on television. Everyone has failed to um, incinerate the, the pig carcass that he used as a stand-in. The experiment that he did that we find most instructive is the one that he did for the Learning Channel several years ago in which he substituted for a human body, not a pig carcass, which does burn very similar to a human body. But in this experiment, Mr. DeHaan chose to replicate the human body by using a fistful of wax candles <laughs> that he wrapped in terry cloth. Now, our first objection to that should be an objection that all your listeners can, can readily understand. Yeah, my 11-year-old. My, my whose, whose, <laughs> whose body is 100% paraffin? Mm. He, he's, he's, he's selecting a material to experiment on, experiment on that we all know will sustain combustion once lit, candle wax. That's what it's designed to do. He wrapped his fistful of candles in terry cloth, laid it on a futon, and ignited it. And then, as the television show documents, a few minutes later, he stands before what is a, a burned localized area in the futon where the candles have been laid and ignited, and says, look, I've, I've recreated the fire scene that Larry Arnold claims to be spontaneous human combustion. Localized fire... Surrounding combustibles are intact. Uh, no damage overhead, he claims. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, that's fine as that's long as the victims are from Madame Tussauds. <laughs> love it. I love it. Excellent. Excellent. 
anyone who saw that sh- that program on the Learning Channel back, if memory serves, it aired first in 1995, would think John DeHaan proved the case. SHC is caused by the Wick effect. The mystery is ended. Nothing more to explore. And if someone is silly enough to continue to perpetuate the superstition or the mythology of spontaneous human combustion, he simply doesn't understand science. Well, what that viewer would not understand is what was shown on that program with John DeHaan standing there and saying, look, I've, I've debunked spontaneous human combustion, is that the viewer was not shown the entire experiment. We had the original footage that was given to us by, bless their hearts, a production company operating out of Toronto, Canada. Mm. Kudos to you guys up there. What the original footage shows is not a localized fire that self-extinguished, but a raging inferno that is within seconds of going flashover in the burn chamber. Fire suppression equipment has to be rushed in to put out the fire. Bingo. So, bingo. What John DeHaan wants everyone to believe is, frankly, a lie. If you have to lie about the success of your experimentation, then what's the value of your experiment? It has, in our view, it has none. Right. That's drawing the uh, the bullseye around the arrow, I guess. Uh now, the those rare individuals that have survived, to me, uh, they they could hold the the clue here, because you can interview them, you can ask them how did you feel, where do, where do you think it started, and so forth. Where is the research uh, in terms of interviewing the survivors, and what knowledge has has uh, that uh, yielded? It's yielded some fascinating interviews. It's yielded some friendships that have endured for for years, even decades in a few instances. Um, But it's not yielded a lot of insight into the phenomenon itself. Spontaneous human combustion is not only rare, it is extraordinarily complex. The cases are so varied um, that we are at a loss to come over up with a single theory or even a few hypotheticals that would allow us to think, okay, this will explain the bulk of the cases. When we get to the survivors, um, clearly they're they're not burned up like Dr. Bentley um, achieved. The survivors, um, their experiences span anywhere from a a severe first-degree burn, what happens when you're out in the sun for too long, to a almost extremely severe third degree, if not fourth degree burn, actually a fourth degree burn in Jack Angel's case. Um, sometimes they see the body smoking for no apparent or understood reason. Um, sometimes they feel a light radiant heat welling up through their back or along the spinal column. Um, we have a case from Baltimore in 1681, if memory serves, Susanna Sewell, who amazed her neighbors by, it is said, generating bright blue-colored sparks from the tips of her fingers. The most significant or most severe case of survived spontaneous human combustion um, that we have had the privilege to interview the survivor would be Jack Angel. His astonishing story happened in November of 1974. At that time, he was a traveling salesman. He was um, using a motorhome as a traveling showroom. 
He parked the motor home in Savannah, Georgia, outside of Ramada Inn, um, one Monday evening, anticipating meeting with a client the following morning. When he awakened, he realized first that he had missed his appointment, he had slept too long. Secondly, he realized that his right forearm was burned black to the flesh, to the bone. Yet as he came to full awakened consciousness, he also realized that his pajamas hadn't burned, the sheets on which his body had been lay, laying, lying uh, were not singed. He got up, got dressed, walked out of the motor home into the Ramada Inn, and subsequently lost consciousness. When he regained awakened state consciousness, he found himself in the Savannah General Hospital, surrounded by a team of physicians marveling about how their patient could have burned himself to this extent. We have the doctor's reports, the diagnosis of the nature of Jack Angel's burn injury to his right forearm is, quote-unquote, internal in origin. Mm. The motorhome was investigated, literally torn apart to the wheelbase, looking for an external cause. A, a multi-million dollar lawsuit was in the works, figuring there was an electrical failure, a plumbing problem, something external. Um, but attributable to a malfunction in Jack's motorhome that would have caused the burn injuries. Nothing could be found. The case had to be pulled from the docket. Uh, we spoke to the attorneys. They were mystified. They were willing to consider that SHC provided the only viable explanation for Jack's injuries. Remarkable. Um, now, you have a background in electrical engineering and mechanical engineering. Uh, you know, you're a, you're a scientist. First we of all, to be. <laughs> you and you have uh, an entirely different thought on this that involves a subatomic particle. Talk to me about that. Okay, you're asking us to discuss our theory of the pyrotron. Mm -hmm. What we did, how we arrived at this, was to look at the amount of energy that it takes to dehydrate a normal adult human being, let's say weighing about 180 80 pounds. We took a, 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 a um, formula from quantum mechanics and crunched the numbers to, to convert the amount of water in a 175-pound human to steam requires over 34 million calories of energy. We can convert that into ergs. That comes out to 1.44 times 10 to the 15 ergs of energy. Now, the idea was, how could we generate that amount of energy in a human body? Well, we, we plugged through the math of the formula in quantum mechanics and came up with a minuscule sub-sub-subatomic particle that we've dubbed the pyrotron which has a wavelength of 1.38 times 10 to the minus 31 centimeters. That, ladies and gentlemen, is extraordinarily small. It is so small that it's highly unlikely that the Large Hadron Collider um, has the technology to discover something that minute. So then how did you discover something that minute? Well, we've discovered it, if you will, mathematically. We certainly have no physical evidence for the existence of this particle. But we did discover that uh, George Gamow, um, if memory serves, he was a professor of physics at Harvard University. He came up from a very different approach from, from macrocosmic uh, theory, looking at what could be the size of the fundamental particle, if there was such a thing. And he came up with 
a scale of a fundamental particle of 10 to the minus 29 centimeters, which is only a power of two off of the size of our hypothesized pyrotron. The idea is this. Uh, the pyrotron is very similar to a neutrino in terms of it being so small that it passes through the spaces between the atoms and the electrons in most of matter. Just as during the time that you were, we have been discussing the subject this evening, our bodies have been penetrated by hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of neutrinos with probably no ill effect. The pyrotron is even smaller, so the likelihood of it hitting something in, in our body's subatomic structure and causing a chain reaction is even more remote. However, as we said earlier, some people with the mega powerball lottery. On occasion, we believe that the, the pyrotron um, does impact with a quark, if you will, and sets off a chain reaction because it has such a high energy. It has about 10 to the 27 ergs of energy, which is a humongous amount of power. Um, when that energy is released instant, instantaneously at the subatomic level, what we believe happens in some cases is, the, is, to use a phrase, a human Hiroshima. The energy cascades rapidly up through the subatomic level to the atomic level to the molecular level and just blasts through the body and, and can quickly dehydrate, break down the water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen and hydroxyl ions, and you're left with basically a pile of powder. So these pyrotrons, uh, I mean, what would happen, what are the, the chain of events necessary in order for this, as you call it, uh, this human Hiroshima to take place? They just have to collide with a quark? Just basically that, yeah. The, the, the pyrotron being so small, uh, the odds of it in impacting any other physical, quasi-physical particle um, is incredibly small. But on now and then, occasionally, weird things do happen. The odds are beat. And if it's a direct head-on collision, if you will, that energy that is encapsulated in the pyrotron has to go somewhere very, very quickly. And it's a lot of energy, as we said. And it's certainly sufficient, in our view, to completely desiccate, dehydrate, break the, break the atomic molecular bonds in a human being's body. We're all walking, ticking time bombs. Body, Aren't we all, potentially we're all ticking time bombs? If you're unlucky enough to be struck head-on by a, by a hypothetical pyrotron, yep. Does it happen quickly? Do we know? I'm thinking about poor old doctor, uh, was it Benton? This man was in his nineties. Bentley. He was in his 90, Bentley, yeah. 90s. He was 92. What a way right. to go. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm praying that it was fast. Indications to us, and again, this belies common sense when you talk to firefighters, because firefighters and, and frankly, the general population, when, when you put your hand on something that's hot, like a, an iron poker that's been heated on a flame or you know, try to pick up a, a, a tipped-over barbecue grill, it's hot, it's going to burn, and you're going to scream in pain. In cases of spontaneous human combustion, it appears that the process is either so rapid or there is no time or means by which the anticipated transmission of pain signals to the brain can occur. The phenomenon 
as bizarre as it is for many reasons, also has with it the apparent inability to produce pain. Um, this is particularly evident when we have cases of those individuals that we've interviewed who have survived partial SHC, as well as witnesses to the more classic type of SHC event. It does not appear that the victim is suffering the anticipated common sense agony that one associates with human flesh being burned. So as gruesome and horrific as the concept is, um, and I view it, if, if you're going to transition the human body, let's do it painlessly and quickly, and this looks like a fine way to do it. Mercifully, yeah, one saving grace. Uh, I'm not sure if this case is in the book, but you cover so many, I'm, I'm quite certain it is. It involves, I believe, a mentally handicapped woman who's in uh, their home north of London, I think in a suburb called Edmonton, not to be confused with Edmonton, Alberta, and her father sitting next to her, a light catches his eye. He glances over, and the entire upper torso of his daughter is aflame. Uh, they take her to hospital, and she later dies, I guess, third-degree burns. Do you, does that case appear in your book? It does indeed. That's genius happen. Um, we had the privilege to be in the room where that episode happened. We spoke to um, the next of kin of Jeannie. Um, when it first happened, as, as you described it quite accurately and succinctly, um, Jeannie's father was sitting across from the table where Jeannie was seated. He heard a loud explosion and a out of the corner of his eye, caught a, a, a flash of light, obviously turned in the direction of Jeannie, and, and as he described it to us, saw a torch of fire coming out of her mouth. Um, Good Lord. She, she later succumbed to her injuries. Um, one of our nemesis, who, who um, clearly doesn't believe in spontaneous human combustion, offered this as the alternative hypothesis or explanation to SHC which was that there was a bystander walking down the street, flipped a cigarette, uh, lit carelessly and, you know, unintentionally, and not intending to do anyone any harm, just flicked a cigarette. And it landed on Jeannie, and that's what was the external ignition source that, that caused her eventual fatal, fatal burn injury. Having been at the scene, however, we could say that that, that flip cigarette would have to trans, transverse about 25 feet of sidewalk, go through the front door, down a 20-foot hallway, make a right-angle turn to get into the kitchen, go over Mr. Saffin's shoulder, and then light on Jeannie Saffin and suddenly turn her into a human torch. You just did the JFK, uh, the magic bullet theory with <laughs> Kevin Costner. Very close, yeah. yeah. Um, it doesn't work, ladies and gentlemen. It just doesn't work that way. Um, if you, if you, you, you kindly characterized us earlier as a scientist, um, our high school, our elementary school, our college training was in, in the scientific methodology. You look at the evidence, you look at a set of facts, and then you try to make sense of it. And it's, it's much easier and, frankly, more intellectually honest to look at these amazing fire scenes and, because we have photographs of them, and these are not photoshopped images. These are historical, accurate documents that depict extraordinary fire scenes. 
deal with the evidence, deal with the facts, deal with what the first responders tell us happened when they walked into these amazing fire scenes and then work backwards to come up with reasonable, intelligent, theoretical at least, explanations rather than come up with silly, inane constructs that surely cannot be supported. There's a, there's a quote on your um, website, uh, parascience.com, and this is the organization you founded over 40 years ago, mm-hmm. PSI, Parascience International. And the, the quote is from the great science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke. Just, uh, I mean, paraphrasing it is, is, is that this is the one question he gets more than any others is about spontaneous human combustion. And I'm thinking, why would people be asking Arthur C. Clarke about this? He did a series for television back in uh, 1994 called Mysterious Universe. And one of the themes of one of those episodes was spontaneous human combustion. And he followed up that quotation with this. He said, some cases still seem to defy explanation and leave me with a creepy and very unscientific feeling. If there's anything more to SHC, I simply don't want to know. Hmm. End quote. And that's, that's perfectly fine. We have no problem with author taking that attitude. It's, it's honest. Um, it's something that he felt was just too frightful to contemplate further. However, when we deal with firefighters, fire professionals, fire investigators, forensic professionals, whose careers should be to investigate fires honestly, when we find them taking the same attitude that Arthur C. Clarke did and then misrepresenting the facts, misrepresenting the evidence, that's a different ball of wax, Mm -hmm. if you will. Um, We have, when, when we were conducting our research for our book ablaze, we had a number of cases that were attributed to Philadelphia in the southeast corner of Pennsylvania. We had just come from meeting with a fire marshal, fire photographer in a nearby community, Upper Darby Township, and had sat down with him over his kitchen table going over a dozen photographs that he had taken of the of the fatal fire that consumed Helen Conway um, not too long before we got there. Um, real succinctly, her, her fire scene amounted to two lower legs propped up against the front of an easy chair in which the rest of Mrs. Conway's body was pretty well destroyed. And yet from the bone of her left forearm uh, dangled a charm bracelet. Um, she was semi-invalidic. She used a brass bell to summon assistance. The brass bell was lying on her burned away upper thigh. Um, no odor of burned flesh at the fire scene. We spoke to all the senior fire officers on that case to a man. They were mystified. And one of the key inst- instances of the Conway case is the time element because of earlier advocates of the Wick theory say that these are low temperature, long smoldering combustion fire scenes. In the Helen Conway case, Every senior firefighter that we interviewed said at maximum she had no more than 21 minutes from the time that she was known to be alive until the fire department arrived to find a fire they really did not have to put out. 
Mm. 21 minutes flat out. But we've narrowed that down when we sat down with Bob Meslin, the fire marshal, who took the photographs, some of which are, a few of which are in our book ablaze. We backed the, the amount of time that it took him to get his camera gear, go back to the fire scene, take those dozen photographs. We narrowed down the, the actual time window from when Mrs. Conway was, had to be alive until she was discovered burned up, um, was 360 seconds, six minutes. That's extraordinary. We went from meeting with, with Bob Meslin and discussing the, the remarkable combustion scene of Mrs. Conway to downtown Philadelphia with a list of names, addresses, and dates, and we asked a senior fire instructor who was on duty that day if we could see the fire files for research purposes. He jokingly said, nope, can't help you, Mr. Arnold, because we don't have those files. And our first thought was, well, some of these are fairly old cases. Maybe you've relocated the files to a different location. Tell us where it is. We'll happily drive there. He said, no, no, you don't, under, you don't understand. We don't have files to show you because what you're asking about doesn't happen. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> we, we put on his desk the photos that we had just received from Bob Meslin on the Conway case. We put the photo of Dr. Bentley on his desk. We put the photos of Mary Weiser on his desk, and we said, sir, you're the expert. We're the amateur, if you will. You as the expert, tell us what you would do. How would you explain these fire scenes if you got a fire call and this is what you walked into? Help us understand these fire scenes. Give us an explanation. What would you do? We will never forget his response. After a prolonged silence, he said, I'd go out, I'd get drunk, and I'd forget about it. <laughs> yep. At which, pay, at which point we were ushered out of the office, literally to the sidewalk, to make sure that... Um, we couldn't ask any more embarrassing questions or show him any more disturbing photographs, apparently. So, you know, treat the subject with, with wonder, with amazement, with fascination, if not with fear and, and, and apprehension, but at least be honest with your approach to it. That's all we ask. That's all we ask of people who look at our research, look at our documentation. Approach it with intellectual honesty and we're going to learn some new things. Well, that, those things are in short supply, unfortunately, these <laughs> days. Thank God for you, Larry. you got to keep on this case because if there's one man on this planet or woman or one person to solve this and unravel this mystery, it's it's going to be you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me. You're most welcome, Richard. We appreciate it very much. Blessings to you and your listeners. Have a great 2018. Same to you. Parascience.com. Parascience.com. Can they order the book through the website? Yes, they can. Excellent. Thank you again, Larry. All Thank the best. you, Richard. Bye-bye. Before I dim the lights on my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to give you a heads up on what's coming up on episode 22 of Conspiracy Unlimited. But before we get to that, let me ask you, is weight loss on your wish list? It certainly is on mine. Unfortunately, and I know this all too well, the commitment to weight loss often fades. Many people simply give up in the first 90 days. 90 days, that's it. The key, the key is having the right mindset. And getting thin and staying that way lies in our thought processes. And hypnotherapy can make all the difference. Now, clinical hypnotherapist Dr. Stephen G. Jones has created a set of five audio hypnotic sessions that apply the power of hypnosis to reprogram the mind and replace bad habits with vibrant 
positive new habits to help you achieve natural and long-lasting weight loss. Weight loss hypnotherapy really works, and it's available now at a special discount. Isn't it time to lose those extra pounds? Check out weight loss hypnotherapy right now at smartclicksavings.com. That's smartclicksavings.com. Coming up on episode 22 of Conspiracy Unlimited, a NASA engineer and former astronaut says NASA can't return to the moon because they lost or destroyed the technology. My guest, Morgan Reynolds of NoMoreGames.net, says how convenient. The fact is, he claims, we never had the technology to go to the moon. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 